says, my name is Rocky Komatsu, and I am a member here at this church, and I've been here since January, and um, we are here with the purpose to plant a church in Waiehu. We would like to reach Waiehu and her surrounding communities, Pakus, Happy Valley, Waihe'e, and, and around there. So uh, that's what we're doing. Uh, my co-planter is Jay Haynes. Jay, if you could raise your hand. Yep. And um, we are in that process, and we plan to launch a church plant in 2019. And so we've been working, we've been partnering with you here at Kahului, uh, praying together and strategizing. And uh, so we are so thankful to be here and grateful uh, for your partnership with us in the advance of the gospel here on Maui. Um, Also, it's a real privilege uh, that Jay and I get to preach. We count it a great privilege to bring the word of God to God's people. And... Every time we preach, Pastor Jay and I will be working through a sermon series examining our mission as the local church. In the first sermon, we saw that our mission flows from the mission of God. In other words, the mission belongs ultimately not to us, but to God himself. And it began in eternity past, before the foundation of the world, when God planned to save a people for himself, through his son, for his glory. And this mission can be traced in the Bible storyline throughout redemptive history. In the second sermon, we saw that there is a very specific message to our mission. That is the message of Christ and him crucified. The gospel, the good news that Jesus lived and died and was buried and rose again for the forgiveness of sin and eternal life for anyone and everyone who would repent and believe it. This is to be the defining message of the local church. It is to be the preeminent message that we preach here at KBC. And the effectiveness of our mission will stand or fall on the faithful proclamation of this gospel. Now today, it's Father's Day. And I wanna say happy Father's Day to all of you fathers. My dad is not here. I'm very, very thankful for him and thankful for you all. But this is not necessarily a Father's Day sermon, though it is applicable to every father here because every father is to lead their homes in advancing the gospel in obedience to Jesus Christ. Today we'll be in Matthew 28, specifically looking at verses 18 to 20. And what we're going to be doing is meditating on the charge of our mission and what this means for us here at KBC. You see, Kahului Baptist is on mission, armed with the gospel message. But what is it that we're supposed to be doing exactly? What is the mission of the church? What is our primary task here? Now, this is different from asking what is our primary purpose. The Westminster Confession of Faith nicely summarizes it like this, that we were created to enjoy God, to, I'm sorry, glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But today, we're not talking about our purpose. We are talking specifically about our task, our duty our responsibility, what are we to do as the church? And in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, Jesus speaks to this in a very clear and concise way, simply commanding his disciples to to make disciples, to make disciples. He commands the church to make disciples. So what is a disciple? Simply put, 
A disciple is someone who follows Jesus as Lord and Savior through baptism and obedience to his commands. A disciple is somebody who follows Jesus as Lord and Savior through baptism and obedience to his commands. For those of you who are taking notes, which Pastor Randy has encouraged us to do, the sermon is titled, Our Mission, The Charge of Disciple Making. And there are three points we're going to look at. First, our authority in disciple making. Second, our process in disciple making. And third, our promise in disciple making. Our authority, our process, and our promise in disciple making. And so, by God's grace and Through the power of the Spirit, I exhort you, KBC, to make disciples. Let me pray and ask that God would do an effectual work here now. Father, we come to you and we are needy. Lord, we, this week alone, have failed time and time again to make disciples. We have failed in our mission many ways. And Lord, for that, we confess our sin and we deserve death for the lack of obedience to you. But we thank you so much for the cross of Jesus Christ and for his bloodshed that forgives us of our sins and ensures that we have the spirit to actually walk in repentance and faith and make disciples. And so, I plead with you, Father, that you would help me to preach your word. Lord, I'm weak, and I pray that you would remove all fear of man and the desire to please and be affirmed by men, and that you would guard my mouth, that I would not sin against you. We pray that you would bless the preaching of your word for the good of Kahului Baptist Church for the advance of this gospel, and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Point number one, our authority in disciple-making. Look at verse 18 through 19 with me. It says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given To me, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Now, to understand the significance of Christ's authority, we first got to understand who he is and what he's just accomplished. The text says, Jesus came to them. Don't miss what just went down. In the prior chapter, Jesus died on the cross and he was buried in the grave, sealed with a tomb. He was dead, friends. No life, no breath, nada, nothing. And dead men don't do this. Dead men do not rise from the grave, which explains why in verse 16 through 17, the disciples, why the disciples' worship was mingled with unbelief. And so when the text says Jesus came to them, understand that this is a phenomenal, don't you dare miss it kind of statement. Jesus stands before his disciples as the resurrected Savior. The one and only Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and makes propitiation. He satisfies the wrath of God. The one standing before them is the one who has conquered and defeated the grave. The one who's risen victorious over sin and death and Satan. Beloved, don't Lose the wonder of the one speaking here. It is amazing that Jesus even comes to them. He has risen from the grave. 
Now notice he says in verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus says he's been given all authority. Authority over all creation. You see, he isn't just the resurrected Savior. He's the exalted Lord over all things. Surely Paul called Jesus' words to mind here when he wrote in Philippians 2, 9-11, God highly exalted Jesus and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Father has given Jesus all authority. Now, you have to forgive me today for being a bad Baptist. You see, I really wanted to use alliteration in my three points. Disciple-making, our power, our process, and our promise. It has a nice ring to it, right? But I didn't do that. And the reason why I didn't do that was because authority and power, though similar, are not one in the same. A helpful way I've heard to distinguish the two is to think of authority as the right to do something and power as the might. Authority as the right and power as the might. And so when the Bible speaks about Jesus' authority, it's speaking about his divine right to do whatsoever he pleases according to his holy will. Now, there are those who possess the authority to do what's right and yet lack the power. And we also know that there are those who possess the power but not the authority. My wife told me I needed to give an example, that that wasn't sufficient to explain what I mean. So in, for example, a, terror, a terrorist organization in the Philippines, they may have the power to plunder a village, but they do not have the legal right to do so. While the local law enforcement in that village may have every right to stop these terrorists, but lack the ability and the power to do it. See what I'm saying? Friends, we never have to worry about that with Jesus. <laughs> As the resurrected Savior and exalted Lord over creation, he not only possesses the power to carry out everything he desires, but also the divine right and prerogative to do so. Now we all know that not all authority is created equal. For instance, if I, as a Terminex sales rep, that's what I do, it's my full-time gig, I, as a Terminex sales rep, come to your home demanding that I do a free home inspection because a week prior, I did leave a note saying, we were in your area. You could laugh at me, decline, and shut the door in my face, and you would experience no real consequences to that. But if, say, an FBI agent who may or may not be a member of your church comes to your home <laughs> with a court-ordered search warrant and demands to search your home, and you treat him the way you treat me, friends, what will happen? there will be real consequences. Why? Because not all authority is created equal. The FBI possesses far greater authority in that situation than the Terminix sales rep. Friends, when it comes to Jesus, there is no one 
one king, not one government, not one ruler or president, not one being in heaven or on earth who possesses the kind of authority that Christ has been given. Now, I'm a fan of the NBA, and there's been an ongoing debate right now on ESPN whether Michael Jordan, who is known as the greatest of all time, whether Michael Jordan or LeBron James is the goat. For you older folks, not the farm animal, but the G-O-A-T, the greatest of all time. And there are many good arguments in favor of both. And in most logical people's minds, it's pretty close. It's a pretty close call. But friends, when it comes to the authority of Christ, there are no close calls. (laughs) There's no one who comes even close to to being on his level. Jesus' authority not only surpasses and exceeds all others, but his authority is utterly incomparable. There is no comparison. The Lord Jesus possesses absolute, universal, sovereign authority over all created things in heaven and on earth. He is the preeminent and supreme Lord over all. Now, why does this even matter? This matters, friends. This matters a lot. This matters because of what Jesus says in verse 19. Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations. Did you see that? Did you catch that connection between the authority of Jesus and the charge of Jesus? Did you catch the connection between Jesus' authority over all of creation and then his charge to his disciples? The one with all authority turns to his disciples and says, therefore, go. What this teaches us is that Jesus' authority serves as the basis of our mission as the local church. Now, where do I get this idea of the local church? Remember, Jesus is commissioning his disciples who, not long after this, on the day of Pentecost, upon the outpouring of the Spirit, would become the original First Baptist Church of Jerusalem. No, I'm only partly kidding about that. But these gathered here would become the first local church. And so, this charge to make disciples by the authority of Jesus has been given to the local church. Now, we don't have time to look at these passages, but I commend them to you If you want to just jot this down, if you're taking notes, Colossians 1, verses 15 through 19, and Ephesians 1, verses 17 to 23, Colossians 1, 15 to 19, and Ephesians 1, 17 to 23, what Paul does there is masterfully highlight Christ's supreme authority over creation and It's direct correlation to the mission of the local church. That's what he's doing in those texts. He's highlighting Christ's authority over all things and its correlation to the mission of the church in the world. You see, as we carry out our mission to make disciples, we function as Christ's authority here on earth and we act on his behalf. Jonathan Lehman, Uh, wrote a a short little book, which I commend to you, um, entitled Church Membership. And in that book, he speaks about local churches functioning like embassies or outposts of the kingdom of heaven here on earth. You see, in God's providence, 
He's chosen to accomplish his redemptive purposes here on earth through the instrumentality of the local church. KBC, these realities are meant to strengthen your confidence in the task of disciple making. I don't know about you, but I often feel like I do not have the right to call my coworkers or my neighbors to repent of sin and believe in Jesus Christ. And if you think about it, ever since Genesis chapter three, the prevailing thought throughout human history has been each individual is the master of their own destiny. I am my own. I define the right and the good for me. And so nobody, especially you, have the right to tell me what to do and tell me how to think. Beloved, this kind of thinking reeks of the stench of the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. And what you and I so desperately need to hear today is this. Because Jesus Christ has indeed risen from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father and has poured out his spirit upon his church, KBC, you and I have absolutely every right and prerogative to call men to faith and repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ. As the body of Christ here on earth, we have unprecedented authority and power to make disciples. Yes, you, Christian, actually have the right and the effectual working of the Spirit's power through the preaching of the gospel to change hearts of stone into hearts of flesh and to call dry bones to life. Be encouraged by the authority of our mission. For there's none like it in the entire universe. And notice our disciple making is to spread to all nations. This means we do this both locally here at home and globally. Beloved, some of you must go to Waihu. And some of you must go to Ilocos Norte in the Philippines. And many of you must stay here. This is what cultivating a faithful culture of disciple making in the local church looks like. We must go and call all people, men and women, boys and girls, young and old, rich and poor, from every nation. We're to think every ethnic group, every tribe, every language. This means Haoles, Hawaiians, Tongans, Samoans, Chinese, Japanese, Filipinos, Micronesians, Indonesians, Indians, Africans, and Arabs. We are to call all men to repent of sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Under the authority of the resurrected Savior and exalted Lord, this is our divine prerogative. This is our responsibility and our right. Now in a gathering this size, guarantee there are some here, for whatever reasons, are not turning from sin and trusting in Christ. And can I just plead with you right now? If this is you. Can I plead with you? Thank you. To do that today. To turn from your sin and trust in this Jesus who holds authority over all things. Because if you don't, there's a day coming where you will have to give an account. And 
if you continue in your rebellion, you will endure the wrath of God for all eternity. But if you turn and trust in Christ today, you will be forgiven. You'll be given new life. So I urge you to do that. Don't wait. Speak with me or Pastor Randy or Pastor Jim or any of our members. We'd love to talk to you about that. And so what we're seeing here is that the local church has the authority to make disciples. But what is this going to look like? What should this look like? Point number two, our process in disciple making. Look at verse 19 through 20 with me. Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. Here we find what could be considered the two-step process of disciple making. First, baptism. And second, Bible instruction. So what is baptism? Baptism is the immersion of a believer in water which physically symbolizes spiritual realities. It's an outward sign of inward realities. Several weeks ago, a friend and I, we made an unplanned stop to backside. You guys know backside? 50 to 60 foot cliff, depending on where you stand, um, in Kaanapali. And we ended up jumping off, and when I came out of the water, I realized that I lost my wedding ring. And this was the second time I've lost my wedding ring to the ocean. Moana's grandma has a problem with me, okay? Um, but luckily, I had a ch- I, all of these were inexpensive, and I had a third, I had a third ring at home. <laughs> and the reason this ring right here is so important to me is because it symbolizes in a public way my marriage to Emily. It signifies our spiritual union together as husband and wife. And in a similar way, Christian baptism symbolizes at least three important spiritual realities. First, baptism is a sign of our spiritual union with the Trinitarian God of the Bible. Notice Jesus says, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Our baptism signifies our faith in and relationship to the one true God who exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And all three share this singular name, which many scholars believe to refer to the divine name of the Old Testament, Yahweh. And so we're baptized in the name, singular, of the three. You see, God has always been and will forever be Trinity, triune. And in disciple-making, we teach that not only is God triune, but that every aspect of our salvation experience is Trinitarian. In other words, the whole spectrum of Christian life is lived in relationship to the Trinity. Beloved, the Trinity is intrinsically and covenantally involved in your life as a Christian. In our baptism, is a public sign of this reality that by faith in Christ, we now enjoy spiritual union with the Trinity. Not only that, but baptism is a sign of our spiritual union with Jesus. By faith in Christ, we've been united to him in his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. By faith in Christ, our old selves were crucified with him and buried with him. By faith in Christ, we have been raised to newness of life and seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And all those who believe 
this publicly demonstrated through baptism. And lastly, baptism is a sign of our spiritual union with Christ's church. You see, at the moment of conversion, the new convert is instantaneously united in spirit to every believer who's ever lived. But how does the world know this? How does the world know that this individual belongs to the people of God? Believers must identify and unite themselves with the local church. And this is exactly what happens in baptism. When we baptize new believers, we're baptizing them into the local church. They are marked off from the world and welcomed into the believing community. In other words, baptism functions as entrance into local church membership. By faith in Christ, we've been united to his people. And our baptism is a public declaration and sign of this reality. Why did I just spend the last five minutes explaining all of this? Because for all of these reasons, for everything that baptism points to, we understand that it is an essential and fundamental aspect of making disciples. And not only that, but it's really a wonder that anyone would want to be baptized. Think about it. For us to exhort unbelievers to believe in the Trinitarian God of the Bible, to turn from sin and trust in him, and to insist that they live out their repentance and faith in the context of local church membership, and then they still want to be baptized? That's amazing. Show me a more proper and concrete response to the call of repentance and faith in the gospel. Show me a more proper and concrete response to the gospel than baptism. You see, we should desire to see many baptized. I'm afraid that in the local church, we become so accustomed to this idea of baptism that we lose the wonder of what it actually is going on. It's a marvelous and miraculous sight to behold when a believer goes under the water and comes up. This is something to be celebrated Something to be cherished, something to be guarded, something to be protected. And it's the first step in our disciple-making process. We preach the gospel, and then we baptize those who respond. Now, as glorious as baptism is, the process doesn't stop there. And unfortunately, in many churches across America, it does. Notice the second and final step. Jesus commands his disciples to teach them to observe all he's commanded them. We're to teach the commands of Christ. And we're to do this to those who are baptized. Where do we find these commands? Can I really know what Jesus taught his disciples? Beloved, there's a reason Christians for centuries have been called the people of the book. It's because we believe that every letter in every word, in every sentence of every book in the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Amen. And therefore, because of that, it is the inerrant infallible, sufficient, and authoritative word of God. Beloved, this means that you and I can be confident. We can be confident that the Bible doesn't just contain the words of Christ, but the Bible you hold in your hands is the very word of Christ. 
And so if we're going to obey all of Christ's commands and teach others to do likewise, the Bible is where we must go. This means giving ourselves and those we disciple to comprehensive Bible instruction and application. Now, being a local here, the temptation when I hear these types of things, it just, no, that's just for smart people, that's for people from the mainland, they care about education and all that kind of stuff. No, this is a Christian thing to devote your mind to know the Bible is Christian. It's not just for people who think they're smart. KBC, devote yourselves to the whole counsel of God. Instruct and apply the word of God in every way that you can. You see, what we want to do is we want to massage every command and all of its implications into every nook and cranny of the heart. Because there's always more to learn. Amen? There's always more to grow. There's always more obedience and honor to be given to Christ. Obeying everything Christ commands means every aspect and facet of our minds, affections, words, actions must continually be conformed to and shaped by the word of God. Christian, if you ever get to the place where you think you've arrived, you need to hear me today. You are in grave danger. The fact is, the more we learn of Christ and his commands, the more we realize how little we know and how far we've got to go. Knowledge of the Bible and obedience to Christ is inexhaustible. This is a lifelong process. And every single local church member is intended to help out one another in this. Every one of you has an obligation to the other in helping each other obey all Christ's commands. This means putting away bitterness and gossip and slander and divisive thinking, but rather being equipped with the word of God and empowered by the spirit, helping your brother and sister in their weakness helping your brother and sister in their sin, not looking with a judgmental eye, not critiquing from a distance, getting involved and laboring till each one of us is formed into Christ's likeness. Your brothers and sisters, listen to me, your brothers and sisters, they need you. We need you to help us obey all of Christ's commands. And you also need to hear this, you need them. We should strive together with Paul in Colossians 1.28 to say, him, that's Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Beloved, today, Recommit to devote yourself to the word of Christ. And there are so many practical ways that this can be done. Some examples might be regularly practicing private and family devotions, regularly attending the Sunday school classes at nine o'clock, regularly studying the Bible as a small group or with unbelievers, most importantly, regularly attending the Lord's Day gathering and listening attentively and expositionally to the preached word. In other words, let the word of Christ, Kahului Baptist, dwell within you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom and insight. And as we devote ourselves and those we baptize to faithful instruction and application of the word of Christ, you know what's going to happen? We're going to fulfill our task of making disciples. So far, we've seen our authority and our process in disciple making. 
what I want us to look at last, the last couple minutes, is point number three, our promise in disciple making, and then we'll finish. The promise Jesus gives his disciples in verse 20 is super important because the task at hand is extremely difficult and hard. Think about it. These disciples were hated by the world. Many of them thrown into prison. Many of them losing their life for the sake of Christ. And in addition to all of that, we see throughout the New Testament their labors, their faithful labors and agony to see others come to follow Christ. And every Christian since has tasted to some degree the difficulty and sacrifice that comes with following Jesus and helping others to do likewise. I've known countless families that have uprooted themselves from everything that they know and everyone that they know to go to a country and a people and a language and a culture that they do not know all for the sake of making disciples. I've seen mothers and fathers who have faithfully and tirelessly labor to instruct their children in the ways of the Lord despite their own exhaustion and discouragement. I've seen men and women open up their homes and open up their lives to make disciples even, and, even when at times the only visible result is desertion, separation, and rejection by the very ones they've given themselves for. I've known brothers and sisters who for countless hours patiently and steadfastly counseled others in the body over the same issues over and over and over again. I've seen brothers and sisters who in tears pleaded with unbelievers to repent and believe the gospel only to be cussed out or threatened or mocked. I've known older saints, mothers and fathers in the faith, who for years and years sacrificially love their local church. Even when many of their friends have passed away or just didn't think it was that important to stay, Beloved, disciple-making is difficult and costly. It will cost you. The question you should be asking yourself then is not, is not if it's going to cost you, but how. How will this cost you? What sacrifices are going to be necessarily made by you to fulfill this great commission? But make no mistake, this is a glorious task. And the reason why is because of what Jesus says here in verse 20. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. With all the hardship and messiness that goes along in disciple making, how do you persevere? How are you gonna make it, Christian? Where is the glory found in the mess? The glory is found in the promise. The promised presence of Christ to be with us always. Jesus tells his disciples, behold, I am with you always. Could there be a more glorious and reassuring promise than this? In the Old Testament, do you know what the distinguishing and defining mark of God's people was? It was his presence among them. Not only that, but God's presence with his people also served as the determining factor of their prosperity and peace. We saw this in Exodus, didn't we, when Pastor Randy uh, preached through it. Do you guys remember how many climaxes, I'm gonna put you on the spot, 
Do you guys remember how many climaxes Pastor Randy said uh, were in the book of Exodus? Uncle Chris, he just did this, <laughs> slyly. Three, there were three climaxes. What was the first one? Deliverance from Egypt. That would be terrible if I got it wrong, huh, Randy? <laughs> Deliverance from Egypt. Second, the giving of the law. And do you know what the third was? In chapter 40, his presence filling the tabernacle. His presence filling the tabernacle, a sign of God's presence among his people to bless them and keep them. Pastor Randy pointed out that the filling of the tabernacle was the first time God's presence dwelt dwelt with his people since the garden in Genesis. And yet, guys, that was only a shadow of what was to come. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, the prophet, speaking of the promised Messiah, said he would be called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And Matthew, our author here, picks up on this in verse uh, in chapter 1, verse 23, by introducing Jesus as the promised Emmanuel. And so the promise Jesus gave to his disciples in verse 20 is really important. Because what he's doing is a fulfillment of God's purpose ever since the beginning to dwell with his people. In Christ, by the Spirit, the blessing of God's presence with his people is restored, brothers and sisters. Christ dwells with us now through the Spirit who lives within every believer, strengthening our courage and sustaining our efforts in the difficult and glorious task of disciple-making. Beloved, Christ is with you now and will always be. There's not one circumstance, nor is there any one trial where the presence of the resurrected Savior and exalted Lord will not be with you by his Spirit. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. The Lord is good and his steadfast love endures forever. There's nothing that will ever threaten to separate you from his love and from his abiding, preserving, protecting presence. Now notice the last part of what Jesus says. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Did you catch that? We're given an implicit promise here. This present age is passing away, friends, and eventually it will come to an end. As we've been seeing in our 1 John series, we are in the last hour now. And soon, Christ will return and usher in his glorious, everlasting kingdom in the new heavens and new earth. This age is passing away. And what this means is that our task to make disciples is temporary. This task comes with an expiration date. There's a day coming where there will be no more need for personal evangelism. No more more need for world missions. No more resistance and persecution. No more warring against the flesh and sin and temptation and the devil. I'll leave you with this vision of this day in Revelation 7 verses 9 through 11. John writes, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one can number from every tribe, from all, uh, I'm sorry, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. KBC. Though our mission is difficult, and costly. We must remember there is a day coming when our task of disciple making will be no more. And on that day, 
all those whom Christ died for will experience infinite, unending, unhindered joy in the full revelation of Christ's presence. We will experience unhindered, you hear me? Unhindered, unending, full joy before the presence of the Lamb of God for all eternity. His presence is with us now. And it not only will sustain us to that day, but it will ensure that our mission here on earth will succeed. The mission of the church will not fail. In fact, it cannot fail. The mission belongs not to us, but to God. And so, by God's grace and through the power of the Spirit, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the authority of the risen Savior and exalted Lord Jesus, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe everything Christ commanded, all the while remembering that he is with you to the very end. Press on, beloved. Press on, my soul. Let me pray that God would help us to do this. Father, we thank you for your word, for the authority given to us in Christ, for the process that you've given us to make disciples, and for the sweet, assuring promise of your presence in Christ by the Spirit to the end. I plead, we plead that you would help these things to go from our minds, mere intellectual absorption, but down into the deepest recesses of our hearts that we might be changed forever, that you might save more and more people, see more churches started. We pray you do this for our good and for your glory in Jesus' name.